Welcome back to Trending in Education. Uh, this is Mike Palmer, joined by uh, my colleague and partner in crime, uh, Brandon Jones. Welcome uh, to the show, Brandon. Thanks, Mike. This is exciting. It's just the, just the three of us, a different three, though. A different three, yes. We have the pleasure of being uh, joined uh, today by uh, Nicholas uh, Tampio, Associate Professor of Political Science out of Fordham. Uh, welcome to the show. Hey, it's great to be here. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, full disclosure, Nick and I have known each other since our college days, uh, way back when. So yeah, 1991. 1991. Oh, look at this. Blowing yeah. up your spot. Yeah. Putting you on blast. Yeah. How old you are. Yeah, well, well, I was... And is that 1991? I heard that new college... I'm also telling you where you went to yes. college. Is I... that... Um, that's the year you start or the year that you, like, there's some like social class thing. Right? I was, Cause... I was, I was three years old at the time. I was, <laughs> I was a prodigy. You're precocious. And, uh, yeah. And then, and then uh, Nick was, Nick really took me under his wing. So uh, especially <laughs> as a three-year-old, it's difficult to, uh, to go to university. But, uh, but anyway, uh, Nick, uh, you know, uh, had an interesting uh, career trajectory uh, over the years. Uh, can you talk to us a little bit about, um, you know, the political science background, uh, but uh, of late you've been uh, focused a little bit more on educational policy and uh, can, can you give, uh, give our listeners a little bit of background? Sure. So I, I, I started my education following the news, following the presidency, following current events, and then I went to college and then grad school and tried to get deeper into the big philosophical issues. What is justice? What is equality? What is liberty? What is freedom? Right? There are all these philosophical debates about these topics. And I wrote two books that had a more philosophical flavor. But in 2012, uh, New York started to implement the Common Core, and it just transformed my kindergarten son's educational experience. And then I started to research it and just said, I need to figure out what's happening and, and see if I can do anything to steer it in a direction that I would like for my family. But I realized that to participate in these conversations, you have to and make arguments that appeal to a lot of people. So since about 2012, I've been writing op-eds. I just had a brand new book come out on the Common Core. I uh, just had a piece come out with Eon. And so, yeah, no, I'm staying with this topic and there's so much to, so much to discuss and, and, and research. Yeah, and you, uh, you came to the right place because uh, we like to talk about uh, what's trending in education. And, uh, and then interestingly, maybe at another time, uh, or if we can weave it in, uh, I'd be curious about your take uh, on Common Core, because mm -hmm. that, that is, in fact, uh, an interesting uh, area that, that we haven't necessarily uh, dived too deeply into uh, on this show. But the, the, the article that you wrote in uh, Aeon, uh, is it pronounced Aeon? You can call it what you like. <laughs> A-E-O-N. It's yeah. a, lot of, a lot of vowels. It's like a bad words with friends rack. Uh, but, uh, but Eon, Aeon, A-E-O-N. Uh, I used the phrase eons ago, but... Okay, with yeah. an A in front of it. Yeah, and uh, you wrote an article, uh, Children Learn Best When Engaged in the Living World and Not on Screens. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, the timing worked out really beautifully for us uh, in that... Uh, we, we just released a show uh, on the work of Marianne Wolf out of uh, UCLA, mm -hmm. who uh, has written, uh, she's just written a book called uh, Reader Come Home, mm -hmm. which is talking about how reading uh, in the digital world has changed the way uh, we process that information. Uh, and it's become more about skimming and getting the information as quickly as possible. Um, that 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 episode just released, and uh, we thought it was a great time uh, to talk to you a little bit about your your Aeon article. Um, in her 
take, she talks about the importance of being biliterate, mm -hmm. uh, meaning that at times uh, it makes more sense to read on a screen. Mm -hmm. At times it makes more sense to read in print. Mm -hmm. um, any thoughts on that from, from your take? Also, any, any, uh, any ways in which you'd like to sort of summarize your, the, the, the main thrust of the article you wrote? Yeah, well, I was, I was reading that article in The Guardian that's been, I think, shared 100,000 times on Facebook. I mean, that's, that's a, huge, a huge article. And I like the article so much for describing the things that are lost in the, this world we inhabit right now where people read super fast. And as a college professor, I confront this all the time that I just realistically, I don't expect my students to hunker down and just read the big books. I mean, I want them to, I, but you know, you're just going to be very frustrated if you demand that for all of your students to pass the class. They won't, you know, it's not a smart, it's not a smart move, but what I try to do as a professor is really inspire them to sit down and read the big books. And I think that, I think that Marilyn's work is excellent for, for highlighting how reading patterns have changed. And as an author of Writes Op-Eds, I, I know that same thing too. I mean, I make my main point within the first two paragraphs and I know that the F style where people go down and just read the isolated lines. I mean, as a writer, if you want people to read your stuff and talk about it, you do that. So I, I agree with her, her on that. I think I'm a little bit more uh, militant in saying that um, when you go, when you say we should be biliterate, you're, you're making too many concessions to the digital age. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, pretty much any education, educational entrepreneur or tech edu ed tech person will say that's fine there but i want to say no you know we really need to think harder about this that we're we're hurting our kids attention spans we're creating monkey brain where they can't concentrate they can't sit in their seats and um I i'm a real firm believer in low tech for the early grades i mean as you get older you can introduce it but like kindergarten kindergartners don't hand them ipads that's mm -hmm. just something i believe mm -hmm. yeah so um I guess your focus is mainly on K-12 in this article too, is that right? Yeah, I'm, I'm, so the, the point of my Eon piece is that uh, if, you, if you Google uh, or look on the internet for competency-based education or computer-based education, you'll see rows of children on computers with headsets on looking at computers typing, and that's a good chunk of their school day. And it's sometimes called personalized learning, which is, if you ask me, a, a euphemism where they make very few connections with the teacher or with their other students. And so I wrote my piece to protest that. That was the concrete thing that that's going on. And I made two lines of argument. One is that I drew upon philosophy and said, we are bodies, we are animals. And if you're gonna have a good educational experience, you have to acknowledge the fact that children need to jump, run, taste, smell, lick, all, every aspect of their bodily or uh, their body needs to be engaged to be it, for it to be a maximum learning experience. Mm -hmm. I mean, reading's part of that, but uh, my, my concern is that there's just a, this incredible shrinkage of, of time and space for children to move. So one line of argumentation was more philosophical and the other argument was more scientific, drawing upon work in neuroscience that talks about the difference of face-to-face -face mm -hmm. interactions. And, and there's some really interesting stuff on mirror neurons where that you can't replicate with screens the exact same relationship you you have in person. Mm -hmm. That when you're on screen, when you're doing uh, video conferencing, you don't know if there's uh, people right on the background. And so you never actually sink into your seat and relax and trust as much the process. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, this doesn't solve all of the problems of how we're going to educate children, but it does suggest that if you want a maximal enriching experience, you have to have flesh and blood teachers. 
you have to be breathing the same air, touching each other on the arms, mm-hmm. laughing together, sort of feeling the, the good vibes. And there's science that's, that's, that's justifying those intuitions a lot of us have. So that, that's my argument, that we need to be thinking really hard about getting children to move their bodies and experience the world. Yeah. Yeah. I think it'd be interesting just for a couple minutes to talk about the philosophical part mm-hmm. here too, um, to draw, you know, you call out the distinction that's drawn by a lot of philosophers throughout sort of Western canon around uh, the mind body gap and mm-hmm. how, you know, there's some, some question about that, about, you know, whether uh, I am a body or I have a body. Um, so I, I was interested in reading that just as you know a reader, but as a sort of co-host of this pod, I think our listeners would also be interested in just talking a little bit about about that because I think that sets up some of the argument around the science side too. So I I went to Johns Hopkins University and I studied with William Connolly and Jane Bennett and I took a seminar called Body Metaphysics and Morals, and one of the books we read by was was Merleau Mont. Uh, Maurice Merleau-Ponty's Phenomenology of Perception. I heard it's phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> but up, up. Um, so the, the thing is, is that this book, we're still reading this book 50, 60 years later, and it still deserves to be part of the conversation because he's really going after the heart of Western philosophy. And the heart of Western philosophy is that we see things with our eyes. And going back to Plato is that we, the, the philosopher's job is to see the ideas, and there's optical metaphors throughout the history of, of philosophy. And although I didn't cite it, this is, yeah. We, um, so John Dewey made a, a similar point when he said that this is a legacy of aristocracy, that the aristocrats wouldn't do things with their hands. The, the slaves would mm. do things with their hands. So mm-hmm. I didn't make that argument in the CM mm. piece, but it's there. And so just in, in various ways, this, this, this way of looking at the world persists throughout time that we see things from a distance. It comes in through our eyes. It goes to our mind. Our eye, our mind makes a decision and then it gears, then it moves back into the world. So and it's connected through the pineal gland to our souls. That's Descartes. Yeah, that's cool. So, and so yes, that, that, and I was reading an article in the New Yorker that was talking about virtual embodiment and it was talking, well, the fact of the matter is, is that this cutting edge technology still involves putting a screen on your eyes and mm-hmm. looking. So the, for, for Maurice Merleau-Ponty, this would not be a groundbreaking discovery. It would be more of the same. So maybe it's more intense of the same. In that respect, it's different. But Merleau-Ponty is really getting us to think about how we need to train our bodies to think certain ways. And for me, that just intuitively makes sense that when I wake up in the morning, I need to have a coffee, that coffee changes the way that I think, that uh, if I don't have enough water, my, my synapses don't fire fast enough. If mm. I don't have enough oxygen, I don't think as clearly. And so Mer- Mer- Merleau-Ponty gives us some philosophical vocabulary and ways of thinking to make sense of that, that we need to move our bodies to generate the kind of thoughts that we want to have. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if you know this about me. I, you may not be a regular listener of the show, but I'm in fact a kinesthetic learner. So true? I learned through dance. Yeah. So uh, it's at least a running bit. It's a so running like whether bit. or not it's a true. <laughs> it's true enough. You also try to introduce the O and the olfactory, olfactory learning. learning. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We did a show. We did a show uh, a month or two back on uh, debunking uh, the learning style myth. So mm-hmm. like there, there's a lot of research in learning science that uh, that indicates that individuals are not actually uh, predisposed to learning in one particular dimension, mm. even though that is intuitively uh, what people feel like. And 
Um, and believed by a lot of educators yes. and academics, yes. et cetera. In fact, we've gotten uh, a decent amount of uh, vehement uh, response oh, right? uh, in the contra- in, in, in the contra- to the contrary. And I know, I know, as someone who enjoys public discourse uh, <laughs> and that uh, course, yeah, yeah, it is it is kind of an interesting thing. But uh, but I was I was jokingly talking about Varco, which is uh, one construct around uh, learning styles, uh, which is visual, auditory, reading. Uh, kinesthetic and olfactory, hmm. <laughs> so that that all. Uh, I think you added the. I o. added it the just, o, it's just Vark, but now it's you, now now it's Varko, it's because, Varko forever, because I'm a, because I'm a thought leader. But uh, but the idea, I mean, like in some ways that that starts to get at uh, the Merlot. By the way, Merlot Ponty is like a name that when you say it. You feel smart. You feel like you just added five IQ points. Yeah, so I'm going to yeah. try to say it a lot. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so so in uh, Merleau-Ponty's uh, piece, which which really rec- harkened back to Husserl in yeah. uh, in many ways. See, see what I did? Oh, man, you're good. Good. Yeah, 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 I'm trying. I'm trying. I would have told a philosophy uh, professor. <laughs> exactly. But um, but it, but in some ways it was talking about that embodiment, and you even mentioned the the power of of, of smells. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it, it is interesting to to think about how you know, in some ways we may be overly subscribed to our visual uh, uh, perceptual uh, capabilities so that things that come in through our eyes sort of take uh, precedence and that when you're trying to engage with the, 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 the entirety of the learner, mm-hmm. it's more multidimensional than, than just simply our eyes. Well, I, I begin the, the Eon essay by talking about a family trip to the farm and, and one of the things about why, why do parents bring their kids to the farm? I don't anticipate my kids are going to grow up to be farmers, right? Mm-hmm. So that, that's not the reason. The reason is, is you want to teach them where eggs come from. You want to teach them where milk comes from. And you want to teach them about what America was like in the 19th century. And, but one of the things I was also trying to get at is there's something elusive that I can't necessarily describe, but I know it's there. Mm-hmm. So the fact is, is when my kids, uh, moved sheep from one stall to the next. I mean, that was, that was like an amazing thing to watch. Just these happy, energetic, uh, I have boys, uh, boys with purpose doing something. And they were talking with other people and laughing with the farmer's kids. And I say that this is something that's really precious and we need to figure out ways to make this a, something like this. It doesn't have to be the same. I, we live in New York and, and farms are a doable thing, but you know, if you live by the water, if you live by the desert, if you live by a forest, I mean, it doesn't, it doesn't matter so much the specifics as it is getting your body into the world, making the, the, the learning come alive. And then as you get older, you can get a little bit more abstract and you know what you're talking about or what's going on when you read. But certainly for the early ages, I'm a firm believer in you got to touch the world. Mm-hmm. And how did your, um, not to make this just about you, Nick, but uh, how, how did the boys, do you think that your uh, family trip, I mean, your mm-hmm. specific children, do you feel like they were able to sort of uh, perceive, ascertain the difference in their experience they had on the farm as a learning experience vis-a-vis what they might do? Like if they had tried to learn about that by reading about it or by watching a video of 19th century America or you know, do they, was that perceptible to them, the difference? It, no. You know, they weren't, they weren't saying, I am at the farm and I, now I am learning about <laughs> right. you know, New York history and um, no, and and I've I've actually the, the last few days I've been reading Mark Johnson. Uh, he wrote a book called Embodied Mind, Meaning and Reason, and and he's a one of his arguments that he makes is that a lot of our conceptual reasoning starts out from 
primitive experiences we have in the world. Mm -hmm. So one of the things my kids did at the farm was that they would put a, a, a leaf at the top of a stream and then follow the stream uh, follow the leaf as they were running alongside the stream for for a couple of minutes and they were fully immersed in the activity they didn't want to be bothered we didn't want to bother them and reading mark johnson you realize they're actually learning about how logic works mm -hmm. you're learning how to follow follow an argument right follow the stream of an of words and and things like that so um here's one of the challenges i know it's real even though i can't always find the explanations for, for why it's real. I can't, I can't tell you what my children did when they were 10 years old, eight years old, what's going to happen when they're 20, 30, 40, 50. Like, that's not how a good education works. But I think that being present on the farm was just an incredibly intense moment where they were constantly growing, striving, having fun. And that's part of learning too. Yeah, uh, it ties to uh, to a movement in education around experiential learning as well, which is like getting outside of the classroom, learning through experiences. Yeah, well, that's that's the battle. I mean, it's a trend. It's a trend, but it's also a battle. If you, when I begin the essay, my editor said, "Can you give some proof that this is a real concern, Nick? I mean, are people really saying that kids should be on computers for most of the day? I mean, nobody's really saying that, are they, Nick? Sure enough, a lot of people are saying that. Right. And so I had a I had a paragraph just finding evidence from the philanthropy world, from the, uh, the, uh, the billionaires world, the mm -hmm. think tank world, the government world. There's just, and the fact is, as adults, we take advantage of computers, right? So right. my argument is not that adults can't learn from computers because obviously they, they can't, but, um, but there, I am part of a movement of people that says, hey, listen, we got to figure out a way to get kids moving and having fun in school. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think in the, the our conversation about the, the Wolf article, um, one of the things we talked about just was being sort of purposeful and intentional mm -hmm. about the kind of, in that case, you know, sort of reading and device or device free that you were doing. And I think that the, you know, sort of intentionality is probably pretty key in what you're talking about here that, you know, it's not that, and maybe you are saying that the children shouldn't learn from devices until a certain age. And I think we can explore that together here on this, on this pod, but when they are, um, you know, being purposeful about what types of things, intentional about what types of things are better learned that way or what can be accessible that way versus just defaulting to have that be their sole source of instruction and realize that you are giving something up when you're learning something from a computer, you know, when you're not sort of have that whole body engagement uh, in, in what it is, the foundational stuff that, you know, will provide hooks for learning for the rest of your life. Um, I, I think that that sort of theme of intentionality applies here too. But I'm, I'm, I'm going to push back a tiny bit against it because um, when I was at New College, I, I took a course on science, technology, and public policy, and I learned about this thesis called autonomous technology. And the, the, the thesis is that technology has steers things a certain way regardless of what our intentions are, right? That if, if you agree to move in a car, you have to participate in the rhythms of driving a, a car. You can't slowly ruminate when another car is barreling towards you. You, you got to think fast. And so my concern is that when you're on a computer, even if you're doing good technology, well thought out programs, it's still getting you to think at a certain rhythm. 
And I'm, I'm nervous that that rhythm is too fast for certain types of thinking. So this is where I overlap with Marilyn Wolf. Mm -hmm. Maybe just as a political actor, I, I say we need to push back a little bit. You're accommodating too much mm -hmm. that, the, the, things, the way that technology works. I'll give you an example of, from my own life that when I went to Johns Hopkins and I was reading the his, part of what the signature style of Johns Hopkins was, read, was to read the history of philosophy. And I would go into a library and for hours at a time read Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, Marx, all these great German big books. And um, I could not have done that right now after several years of Facebook and Twitter. My mind doesn't go at that. I can't hunker down in the same way. And so I'm with Marilyn Wolf that, yes, we're losing something valuable. I would also think we got to push back somehow. We can't just let it happen and, and try to accommodate ourselves. That's, that's too reasonable. We need to be a little bit unreasonable. Mm, interesting. Um, you, we were talking about um, Marianne Wolf's uh, uh, writing about reading. Uh, I was struck by the critique about screens when uh, you seem anti-screen yet pro-reading. There, I, I was, I was pr printing up some articles uh, about that topic and um, there, there have been studies that show that people can follow the main argument better when they read it on paper, that, um, that they, can, they can explain both the, I read one study that said they can explain the main argument better, and then um, another one that said they can recall the details better. Uh, I was also looking up articles about the difference between taking notes by computer and taking notes by hand. Mm -hmm. And uh, so... I still need to figure out how to make the argument as best as I can, but I think there's a difference between reading by books and reading by paper. I mean, doctors say you shouldn't, kids shouldn't read on screens an hour before they go to bed. Sure. And you can read paper right up until you go to bed. Right. And, and I was talking to a chiropractor and we were talking about how um, the diodes from the screens activate, I'm going to get this wrong, the parasympathetic nervous system and the books uh, work with the uh, sympathetic a nerve system. So mm -hmm. anyhow, this, this is just a this pencil that I might erase and rewrite later. But the, but the point is, is that I do think that there is a difference between screens and reading books. And I'm a huge fan of reading books. And yes, I do re read screens much of the day as a professional. I mean, it's very hard to avoid. But uh, I think the, a world without books would be really, really scary. Oh, I, uh, I completely agree. I, I just, for me, it's interesting to think about, you know, you're mentioning, uh, you know, Kant, Hegel, Nietzsche, uh, you know, uh, an undergrad today probably is reading more, an increasing number of excerpts of them on screens and they don't have to carry around like multiple really big books mm -hmm. to be able to do that and or having to go to the library to do it. So I do think there is utility and ease of use around screens that that is a real thing. So like I'm, by no means, you know, I'm a, I'm a believer in biliteracy, uh, mm. even though I just learned about it earlier uh, this week. But like, I, I do think it's important to understand when the form factor and the, the technology medium is most advantageous to the learner's intent, getting back to what Brandon was talking about. Um, and I think there, there, there are innumerable cases where reading in a book or reading a printout is, is more uh, efficacious. But I think there are there are plenty of examples in the other direction, okay. and 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 I just think um, it's a little. I think there's a risk that we become reductive when we start saying that screens uniformly are are problematic. You know, so so that was the only reason why I wanted to kind of sort of like flesh out 
uh, a, a bit of a counter perspective. Yeah, well, you know, we we might we might end up disagreeing at the at the end of the day. We we uh, pretty much every major philosopher that we know grew up in print culture, so we have no great philosopher who grew up as a digital native. Socrates was not print, though, right? <laughs> All right, th- then let's get a, let's get rid of books and screens. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, I mean, I'm very nervous about putting all, all of our eggs in one basket. When I was in high school, there was a donor who offered to have a, get rid of all the paper from my high school. And this is the 80s and 90s. And, and thank goodness that, that we didn't go that route. Um, I mean, I think that, that the notion of a professor having an office without a bookshelf groaning under books Maybe it's possible, but I'm, I'm doubtful, right? I mean, part of what I do as a poli-sci professor is we read great books and we try to create a seance and we try to make these dead people come to life. And, you know, I just, in American political thought, we teach, we read the Federalist Papers and we try to make, my job as a professor is to make Hamilton and Madison come alive. And I know, I know that can be done with paper. I'm not sure it can be done with, with screens or not in the same way. Yeah, I mean, although, you know, again, just to press, why sure, not? Uh, you know, you could watch, assuming Lin-Manuel Miranda would allow us to watch uh, Hamilton on screens in class. Like, that is something that'd be difficult to capture in a book in the way that you could make that experience real. Granted, it would be better if you could take every kid in America to see Hamilton, but uh, as a New Yorker who hasn't uh, <laughs> seen Hamilton yet, it, they, there, are, there are access challenges around physical proximity mm-hmm. that can be addressed in a more uh, broadly accessible way uh, through screens. Yeah, that was to, for me, just to jump in on your point there, that was, uh, it's probably not offered as a critique, but a, a, a thought that was provoked in reading through the Eon article was, there is an access, like the implication that you could take your kids to the farm. Not everyone can take her or his kids to the farm. And, and I know that's not just a farm environment. You know, you talked about if you're by the ocean or in the desert and the wherever. Um, but I, I, do, I do think about access and, and what implications that has for this kind of critique of modern sort of education, uh, the, the proliferation of devices in the classroom. And so... Um, I'll, I'm, I'm going to let you respond in just one second, but I, I, I think that that's why for me, at least, um, we should be aware of the consequences intended and otherwise of the form factors that we're using. And so if, you know, you talked about sort of monkey brain, if, if the, you know, inability to have longer focused attention is an implication of some of the you know, form factors that we're forced to choose potentially because of access issues, then we, we need to figure out about ways to encourage that kind of um, you know, skill building in children through some other way. So you know, again, it's, it's, um, we may end up on different sides of this argument, but uh, at the very least, understanding what the implications are, I think is really important. Yeah, well, that th- those are all really good good points. And, and going to access one of the things that in local school district that they were bragging about was with iPads, you could look at the Amazon. And so this is, so I think your general point is that with screens, people can learn, they can learn about other corners oh, of the you world. Mean, you mean the jungle, not not the e-commerce website. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, no, uh, the jungle. And so so with screens, you can you can travel all around the world. You can make friends around the world. You can learn about debates. You can participate in debates. So these are all legitimate good things. But I, I suppose what I would say is that um, you should see live animals. 
that that no matter if you if you're if your only exposure to animals or primary exposure to animals is via screens, they're not going to seem as real mm. as being around live animals. So I was talking to a, a friend who is a zoo doctor and he says, you know, when you watch things on screen, they could be Spider-Man, Lord of the Rings, they can Hollywood can do amazing things. There's actually a value to going to to zoos. Mm -hmm. And so just to, to come back to the point is that I mean, my vision's low tech, mm -hmm. so it's not. I'm not. I'm not saying we should break the bank. I'm saying we should give teach uh, students opportunities to be around teachers, to be around students, mm -hmm. to be on recess. I mean, mm -hmm. that's like that's the easiest policy recommendation that I have right now is greatly expand the amount of time kids spend playing unstructured, being outside, being with friends. Try to, you know, I mean, if there are a couple of kids out there, throw them a ball. Right. We'll just then get out of their way because yeah. they're going to figure something out. And who knows if it'll be kickball, dodgeball, whatever. They'll figure out something to, to do. So um, just to, to, to pull it together is that um, I think you can give a really good equitable education that's still low tech. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting uh, to, to think about this also through the lens of the future of work mm -hmm. and try to understand. Um, first off, just to be clear, like I think you have – I think we're generally in agreement around uh, the dangers of too much screen time. So okay. like, I, I don't want to come across as though we're like, I don't know what you're talking about, Nick. Like, I, I think we all understand the risks that are involved. I think just trying to understand more fully the, the range of experiences that are available, some digitally powered, some not is more maybe where, where there's a little more divergence, like in terms of the, the value of the digital side of the equation. Uh, I think there's probably agreement uh, among at least Brendan and I that- Yeah, people can't see me nod, they can't hear me yeah, nodding. Yeah, I, could, yeah. I could nod louder, yeah, but, like, uh, but yeah, I am nodding to yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, so, so but, but, but it is interesting in a world that's increasingly digitally powered mm -hmm. and the future of work is likely to involve some engagement uh, with an increasingly digital world around us, um, frequently a gateway to uh, to a more successful and fully realized life is the ability to engage with the digital world that's emerging. That's going to continue to happen. Sure. Um, at what point do you think it's uh, developmentally appropriate to begin to introduce that concept first and then the tools secondly? Because it may... If, if I'm reading your direction right, it may be that you can provide developmentally appropriate scaffolding into understanding the digital world without necessarily consuming learners' times with screens before you start actually uh, exposing them to those screens. So I, I'd be curious your perspective on, on any and all of that. Yes. Yeah, so um, this was an, an essay. An essay is sort of exploration. So I'm still... I've got an incredible correspondence about this piece, and, and including by somebody who went to a Sudsbury school where they, uh, some of the kids are not using technology and some are, are using technology. So this is clearly something I and other people should keep, keep, keep investigating. Mm -hmm. I've got a couple initial responses. One is that I want my kids to be smart. And um, the fact is, is an iPad is pretty easy to use. And so using an iPad, I don't feel is necessarily going to make them very smart. I would rather them hunker down and learn math. And there's a famous line from Erasmus that's still true. There's no royal road to wisdom. Like you got to hunker down and do the hard work. And 
Um, so no matter how, so it doesn't really matter how flashy the technology is. What I care about is my young person who's in my life and who I'm responsible for educating that, that I want them to get smart. Mm -hmm. And, and so if you're smart and then you subsequently as an adult use technology pretty fast, right? I mean, the fact is, is that, um, coding is, is hard work, but using, using technologies pretty easily. So coding is kind of math and logic. And again, I think there's ways to learn math and logic that can be pretty low tech for when you then make the leap into say, in this case, coding. I don't wanna, I don't wanna put too much of my weight on uh, economics. I mean, I, my recent book on the Common Core, I, I really make it a democratic argument. And, and I really think that if you, we should encourage all young people to get a well-rounded education and that's the health, that's important for the health of democracy. And, when you have some rich kids who get well edu well-rounded education, and and some people who are just work geared really quickly for the workforce, I think that's a problem. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I realize that I need to make some sort of uh, I do need to address the concerns of parents who are afraid that their kids won't be able to compete or that their country won't be able to compete economically. And I guess that if I was to stay with this line of argument, I would say that you you can get creative by doing things with your hands, with, with be, dancing, with smelling, right, olfactory, um, that you, there, there, there's different ways to cultivate creativity and, and sort of just teaching people to hunker down and work on computers, that, that might not be the best. I mean, that could be for some people, but I think for a society, you want to have entrepreneurs, and I'm, and I'm not sure that digital learning is, is the best way to, to train entrepreneurship. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, just to kind of close out on that, like I was, one thing we talked about a little bit on the show is uh, the the prevalence of Minecraft and mm -hmm. related uh, games among kids and how increasingly some kids who are getting into these types of gaming platforms are beginning to design levels within mm -hmm. Minecraft. And like the idea that the ability to make things mm -hmm. within uh, the digital realm is a new thing. And the idea that exposing that level of digital agency and creativity to young kids is another interesting uh, change, I guess, to the world that, that many of us grew up in, where like very few kids, I think, in the, 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 the 80s and the 90s uh, maybe were coding when they were eight. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, many kids are designing Minecraft levels and the kids who are doing that may wind up having an advantage to becoming the coders or the game designers that uh, that you were referring to earlier mm -hmm. and that that's why I do think it's a it's a, I think it's a it's a meaningful problem that, yeah, that we're is. that we're grappling with here I don't think there's necessarily like a clear answer one way or another because on the flip side increasingly uh, I'm reading about the, the importance and the value of a liberal arts education mm -hmm. and the importance and value of non stem uh, almost as a counter trend in response to too much of a laser focus on employability and uh, and you know the, the value of stem in the future but I do think it's an there's some interesting tensions here where like if uh, you, you know you decide to opt out either in your classroom or with your your kids there is a little bit of risk that they they wind up uh, at a disadvantage in terms of a more uh, digital career path. Well, it's a conversation to, to keep having. I'm uh, one person commented on Facebook about my ENSA saying that they, they were an Eastern uh, former Eastern Bloc country, and they were saying everybody in our country 
every parent wants their kids to learn digital skills so they can get out. And mm. so they said, this is absolutely ridiculous that poor people in our country are sent to the farm and people who, with no options are sent to the farm. And here, here is this uh, privileged American who's talking about the beauty of farms. So uh, yeah, that, that stung, but I think there's, <laughs> I, need to, I need to figure out a, a good response to that. And so you know, my initial response is, do the parents in your country care about the happiness of their children? Or mm-hmm. is, that, is happiness a luxury? But that, you know, that's a little, that's, you know, I'm not going to go there. <laughs> Although I just went oh, there. And it's but. on Facebook. You, you, you'd be fine. <laughs> you know, people are used to it. But. Yeah. But, but I suppose I'll, I'll, I would just keep coming back to my point that, um, that if you, if you, if you get good at math, then, then you can figure stuff out. I mean, the thing what I, with this Minecraft thing, I'd want to know, is it mostly clicking and dragging or is it actually like typing out code? Cause mm-hmm. if it's, if it's quick clicking and dragging, that's not, that's something, but that's not a ton. I mean, uh, when I got, when I got to IU Indiana university and I took a stats class and I had to do computer programming and I, you know, I had a, I had a agonizing experience where I forgot to put a comma in mm-hmm. a code and, and I couldn't figure out how to get the program to run until I got the comma to go. So, yeah. um, you know, that, that's a, that's a different thing than clicking and dragging in a Minecraft where they're pretty much going to guarantee you don't fail. So, yeah, although I, I would, this is, this is the discourse here. Sure. That's what we signed up for. Yeah. I, I would say that in a, in an, you know, where we've argued that children seeing a leaf flow down a stream on the farm could you know, our learning logic. I, I think you can make the same conclusion about, you know, sort of cause effect if then happening in, in Minecraft, you know, which is, I haven't actually experienced myself, but I think it's, let's just assume it's mostly click and drop, not click and drag. Um, I, I still think that, that that's engaging uh, in, in a different way, so stipulated than, than being out in the environment and, you know, smelling the breeze, um, smelling the animals. That's what I've been thinking about most of this time is smelling yeah. <laughs> the animals. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think that's, that's an, an engaging thing too. I also, you know, just on the, the screens versus no screens, you know, at the sort of risk of being a sophist here, like either there is zero uh, optimal uses of screens or there is a non-zero number for children. Yeah, I'm I'm hesitant to 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 get to that specifics, I, and also I think that in democratic process this should be a, a, a subject of debate. Let me let me just tell you uh, how I one of the ways that I came to this from my previous book project. So I wrote a book on the Common Core. I was looking at national education standards, and the common thread between all the national standards, education standards on tap right now in America, are that they can all be tested on computers. And so the next generation science standards are all click and drag, and and they're still they're still working out the um, the testing formatting, but they say look to the PISA, the Program for International Student Assessment, and you can look at the science tests, and you can look you can do the mat, you can do the, the the tests online, and I do them in my classes at at Fordham, and I say students, what do you what are we learning, what are we not learning? Mm-hmm. So you absolutely learn something, but when you actually read the literature about the next generation science standards, they make clear we don't expect students to know the names of flowers or minerals. It's just all of these very basic skills that can be tested on computers. Mm-hmm. And so, so yes, there's a, there's a, there's a good open question between zero and a ton. So that, that's the, yeah, to me, it's just zero. I'm, I'm just talking binarily zero or non-zero because if it's a non-zero number, then now we're just negotiating terms like to the old Winston Churchill um, drag. Right. So um, I, I, and that, that's where to me, I, I'm, I, as just, a, again, or just a reader of your article, I, mm. I felt 
as a kid, as having spent, I'm no longer a kid. When as a kid, I spent a lot of my childhood outdoors, um, I can see real value in that. Um, and I think, you know, as a parent of a four-year-old, it's actually inspiring me to think about how I can, you know, sort of um, increase the, the titration of her time more towards that. It's, um, it, it's I, I don't know that I would, I, or I know I wouldn't go so far as to say there is never a time when a device is preferable for the learning outcome that we want. And then that, so that to me means that it's hard to reduce to, uh, all, you know, always or never, or sometimes or never. If it is sometimes, then it's figuring out to me, again, this is my argument, not yours, but figuring out what the sometimes are. Well, so when I, when I was in high school, I think there was an optional computer class. So there were seven classes a day. You could do one, one class a day on computers. Like that, that's, that's one thing, right? When you look on what's on the horizon right now, it's every class, mm -hmm. right? So the fact is, is that I could live with one out of seven. I cannot, I cannot rest satisfied with my kids doing six or seven out of seven mm -hmm. on computers. Right. And it does sound like, uh, you know, first off, uh, your essay, which we would encourage folks uh, to read, uh, is very thought-provoking on a number of levels. And uh, I think in some ways that was part of your intent was to begin a conversation. And I've known you for years. You don't mind a little uh, healthy discourse uh, as part of the conversation. So, so I definitely uh, appreciate you, uh, you coming in to engage. And uh, we would love to engage with our audience and continue to engage with you and your audience on this conversation because by no means is it uh, going away. You know, like this is going to be an ongoing conversation. And if I'm hearing you right, there's some risk that the trends that are out there are going to accelerate to a point that the, the, the deep reading and uh, cognitive patience and a lot of the concepts that we talked about in the, the Wolf uh, articles uh, are, are, are more fundamentally at risk unless some folks like yourself and uh, Dr. Wolf start uh, arguing for caution. And, uh, and that's generally what I was, uh, was picking up from, uh, from your article. I do have one more question before we go to the freestyle phase. All right. Today. <laughs> uh, what about listening? So like you were talking about screens and you, we call our eyes uh, our learn balls uh -huh. and our ears our learn holes. Uh, <laughs> so uh, although, although we may have to stop because we enjoy that too much. But, uh, but how much of learning can come in through your ears? And then I know it's almost the same problem uh, that uh, Merleau-Ponty and others were talking about where you almost want that, that full integrated experience across your perceptual dimensions. But uh, do you have any thoughts about that? Because I, I, I would imagine, uh, you know, you could be out at the farm listening to an audio book about uh, Husserl <laughs> and, uh, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's too much, but like I am truly uh, struck, uh, I'm somewhat dumbstruck by how much learning comes in through my, my ears these days. Yeah, well, that, that's actually been something that I've discovered this year being an author, trying to get my arguments out to a wider public, you're discovering that people are listening to mm -hmm. things. So maybe, maybe um, we, they're not reading books as much as you might like, but they are listening to arguments. And I mean, I did one, I did one, uh, one podcast about my book that's on my homepage that I walked through the entire argument of my book in one hour and 15 minutes. And that's been listened to a lot. Mm -hmm. And so, no, I think that's a positive trend. And I think you can learn a lot. And, uh, 
Yeah, no, I think that's a good trend. Yeah, and it, I mean, it's somewhat, uh, I know there's more research. Uh, there's a company, uh, I think out of Panoply, which is a Graham Holdings uh, sister division uh, to Kaplan, uh, who's been looking at uh, designing for pre-K, like audio instruction for pre-K, which, uh, which really curbs the, it doesn't, cur- it avoids the, the screen addiction mm-hmm. possibility for, uh, for that audience. And it gives educators tools to sort of supplement what they can provide as educators without uh, almost like, you know, abrogating their responsibility mm-hmm. to continue to engage the class. They can just bring up sound. And in some ways, sound is a less um, all-consuming uh, instructional format. So, so I, I've been really struck by that. Yeah, well, I, that, yes, I, I do think that that's right. Um, I'd want to, you know, study the details. I, I I want to make sure kids get hugs and and have forming loving relationships with teachers, appropriately loving relationships with teachers. Um, no, but I think I think the audio trend is a good thing. Yeah. So that that's as far as I thought about. And and uh, we're 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 trying to figure out how to do more audio hugs. Uh, so <laughs> so we'll, we'll, the group audio hug uh, to our listeners. We're entering the freestyle phase, uh, Brandon. Any uh, any? Uh... Yeah. Well, before we do, I just I want to make sure while we have time that uh, our listeners can hear a little bit more from from Nick about where they can read. Uh, hopefully a little bit more of your work. So you, uh, you are an author and um, you have uh, op-eds out in the world as well. Where can people find more of your work? So if you, if you go to Amazon and Nicholas Tampio, you'll find my book, Common Core. And that's the book that I really invested a lot of time and energy for people who just want to get up to speed on what's happening in education. And who's the audience? Is it just, is it the general public? Is it educators? Is it parents? I once had a mom tell me that she read my op-ed that she one of my op-eds eight times and she's, mm. she's my audience. So uh, people who are not academics who are willing to work a little bit and just because it's important, how are you educating children? And if they're willing to do that, I try to make the book as simple, but as accurate and informative as I could. Yeah. I, well, I hope the folks heard if you're hearing from Nick for the first time, um, you know, th- there's obviously you put a lot of thought into this and I imagine uh, research as well. So, um, so I will go check out your book uh, and I hope others do uh, too as well. Awesome. Uh, any parting thoughts uh, from you, uh, Nick, as we're wrapping up? Oh, this was a real pleasure. Thanks so much, guys. Yeah, awesome. Uh, Dr. Nicholas Tampio, associate professor out of uh, Fordham University. Check out his work on the Common Core. Check out his essay on Eon. Uh, definitely continue to listen to Trending in Education. Tell your friends. Uh, tell your friends' friends. Uh, download it for yourself and others. And uh, we'll be back back again soon. Thanks for listening. <laughs>